So we're going to talk about the writings. What do I mean by the writings? I'm going to show you a, about a two-minute video uh, from the Bible Project. This is um, a scholar uh, named Mackie and a, a kind of an illustrator who did this project. They have all these awesome videos. Uh, I don't agree with 100% with everything in their theology or anything, but uh, these are very, very helpful to understand um, things about the Old Testament, how the Old Testament is put together. Uh, and of course, we're studying a large section of the Old Testament in this uh, two-session class. So uh, this would be a helpful kind of uh, helpful for us to understand what I mean by the writings. Okay, so we're going to watch about two minutes of this. We're not going to watch. It says twelve. We're not going to watch the full twelve. But uh, just a couple minutes of this uh, to start our discussion. Okay. If you open a Protestant Christian Bible and look at the table of contents, you'll notice the first three quarters is a collection called the Old Testament. If you look at the list of books, you'll see it's made up of 39 smaller works that are grouped into four main sections. The first five are called the Pentateuch, followed by the historical books, then the poetic books, and finally the books of the prophets. Now that seems simple enough, but actually it's more complicated and way more interesting. This arrangement of the books in a single volume called the Old Testament is a later Christian tradition that developed after Jesus and the apostles. In ancient Jewish tradition, these works were all on separate scrolls and were conceived of as a unified three-part collection called Tanakh. It's a Hebrew acronym for Torah, which means instruction, Nevi'im, which means prophets, and Ketuvim, which means writings. The Tanakh has the same books as the Protestant Old Testament, but they're arranged differently. The Torah corresponds to the Pentateuch, but the prophets consist of four historical narrative books and then the 15 works named after specific prophets. After this comes the writings, a diverse collection of poetic and narrative texts. Now this three-part design is really, really old. It's referred to in ancient Jewish texts like the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Wisdom of Ben Sirah, even Jesus of Nazareth mentioned it. And that's because this three-part shape is woven into the compositional design of the scrolls themselves. If you pay attention, you'll discover that every scroll has been coordinated by means of cross-references that link each work into the larger three-part collection. So who put all these scrolls together? It was a long process. Some of the famous contributors are named, like Moses or David, but most of the authors remain anonymous. In the Bible, they're simply called scribes or the prophets. These scrolls took shape throughout Israel's history as generations of prophetic scribes collected earlier stories and poems, integrated them into larger compositions, and then eventually shaped all this material into the unified library of scrolls, the Tanakh. It's clear from texts in the Psalms and Prophets that these prophetic scribes believed that God's Spirit was guiding this whole process, so that through these human words, God speaks to his people. That's why they treasured these texts, studying and composing them into a unified collection. We don't know when precisely this process was finished, but it was somewhere in the last centuries before the time of Jesus. In its final shape, the Tanakh offers a prophetic interpretation of Israel's history that claims to reveal God's purposes to rescue the whole world. And while we can't do justice to the whole collection in one video, it's helpful to get an overview of what these scrolls are all about. The okay, so we're not going to do the overview. About. But this uh, hopefully uh, gives us some kind of clue as to what I mean by the writings. Okay, so that's what we're studying in this uh, in this time. Uh, last year, 
Uh, some of you are with us, but last spring we taught through the Pentateuch, or the Torah, um, which is this first uh, collection here. Uh, then last fall we taught through the Prophets, and uh, well, actually we started the Prophets in the spring and then we finished in the fall. Mm -hmm. And then now in this two-session uh, uh, setting we'll uh, study the writings. Um, so he talks about the differences there between the Hebrew Bible, or the Tanakh, and the Old Testament that's in your uh, Christian Bibles. So go ahead and turn to Luke 24. So this is, um, I've often said, this is the, if I had a time machine and I could go anywhere, this is actually the scene I would go to, uh, the actual moment in history. This is resurrected Jesus uh, teaching his disciples mm -hmm. about how to understand what has just happened, right? So uh, could I get a volunteer to read verse 44 of Luke 24? Volunteers, great volunteers. Sure. <clears throat> now he said to them, <clears throat> These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Okay, so uh, there he's, 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 basically this is the climax of all of history, right? And he's saying, he's explaining what has happened, the, his death, uh, burial, <laughs> resurrection uh, he's explaining all of these things in reference to the Old Testament or at that time what was the Hebrew Bible so uh, that's why he mentions this in this way the law of Moses the prophets and the Psalms that is the actual the order of the Hebrew scriptures at the time okay that was the order that um, was being Prominently used in Judea. Okay, so we have um, a couple of different text traditions. Uh, if you remember uh, from Old Testament history, if you remember, there's um, uh, the wiping out of the northern kingdom in 722 BC by Assyria, and then the wiping out of the southern kingdom by uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar in uh, 586 BC. So uh, we see kind of this Babylonian text tradition that remains while the people are in exile. And that text tradition, which was, again, as he mentioned in the, in the video, uh, made up of a lot of these scrolls, um, that text tradition is really what we see Jesus referring to here, which is uh, the law, and that marker does not work. Uh, that there so I can throw it away later. Um, the law, the prophets, and the writings are sometimes referred to as the Psalms because that was the first book in the writings and of course by far the largest book in the writings, right? Um, as he mentions here, it's also uh, this um, order is also mentioned in uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the wisdom of Ben Sirach. This is a 
very prominent book in the intertestamental period. Uh, but it uh, attributes the fact that this was the order that was being used uh, by the Jews. Um, Pharisees, uh, the, the, most of the people and the synagogues were using this order in Judea. This is what they thought of as their Bible, right? All of these scrolls collected in this particular order, this is how they studied it, okay? Now we have another text tradition. This is kind of, I'm call this like Babylonian. We have another text tradition which emerged um, a little bit later, and I'll call this like Alexandrian or Egyptian, I guess. Uh, Alexandrian. And this text tradition um, was the Septuagint, right, which you may have heard of. That is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but when they did the Septuagint, they reorder things, and sometimes they change some of the books. Uh, Jeremiah in the Septuagint, for instance, is substantially smaller than uh, what's in the Hebrew Bible, okay? So this is the Alexandrian text tradition, and this is where we see this kind of, uh, what did he say? You know, it's more uh, the law, then uh, you had like historical books, uh, prophets, uh, you know, it's just, it's ordered differently, ordered the way that we have in our Bibles, right? So um, why do I want to, in this session, uh, and in the last sessions, why am I studying it this way? Well, I think we can see a clue from Jesus here, uh, and again, climax of history, this is the best way to understand what has just happened. And this is the best way to understand everything that's uh, been written up to this point about this moment. Um, the best way to understand this is by studying it in this order, okay? So uh, the English Bibles are, and he said it's a Christian tradition, it really followed the Septuagint, right? So you start with um, the Pentateuch, um, you know, the five writings of Moses, which are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then uh, it has uh, several of the former prophets. It has the former prophets like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. But then what the Septuagint did was said, well, Chronicles is a lot like Kings, so we're going to move it up next to Kings. Mm -hmm. And then it said, well, Ruth takes time, uh, takes place in the time of the Judges, so we're going to move it up next to the Judges, right? So there was an intentionality with the Septuagint, but it has a different intentionality that the Hebrew scholars had when they were putting together the Hebrew Bible, okay? So um, as he says, there is some, uh, what I would suggest is um, some theological intention in the Hebrew Bible order, which I think is important for understanding Christ. And so I think that we, as New Covenant believers, it would be helpful in a class like this to understand the big picture of the Bible, to read it and study it in that way. So that's why we're studying it in this order. Um, I'm not, let me, if you write anything down, please write this down. I'm not telling you that you should go and burn your English Bible, right? Because there's nothing wrong with the order of the English Bible, okay? It's all the same books. It's all the same books that were here, right, in this Babylonian text tradition, the Hebrew Bible. 
all the same books, all the same material, all the, all the everything's there. Um, in fact, although the English Bibles use the Septuagint ordering, and um, you know, because it was written, Septuagint's written in Greek, we're relying on that a lot, um, they still, English Bibles still use the Masoretic text, which came from this text tradition, right? So we still have the, we have the full Jeremiah, right, in our English Bibles, right? So um, it's important to note that, right? We're not missing anything in our English Old Testament, uh, but there's a reason why in a class like this, when I'm trying to get you to see the big picture, why we're studying the Hebrew Bible ordering. And um, I'll get to your question in just a second. Um, I do have a Hebrew Bible up here if you want to see it afterwards. Uh, again, same books that we have in our English Bibles. This actually is a Hebrew and English next to each other, um, which Hebrew is very difficult because you read it right to left mm -hmm. instead of left to right. Um, at least I found it very difficult. Um, so anyway, you can see this though. It's Torah, Prophets, Writings. It's in this threefold um, uh, structure. So this... Um, this is what they use in uh, rabbinic Judaism now, right? This is their Bible. Uh, and again, it comes from this, what they would say is the, the tradition of God, right? This is scriptures. And I would agree with that. That's the tradition of God. But we need to add the, the New Testament to it because Christ came and yeah. fulfilled what's here. And so that's a lot of what we'll do as we study the, the writings is to understand what these are saying, what these writings are not only uh, saying to, um, you know, Israelites who are living in the exile, but what are these writings saying to believers of all generations and future generations, including New Covenant believers? So that's what we'll do when we study this. Yeah. I'm just curious if, like, some of the removal of Jeremiah was, like, an early form of censorship? Like, was it part of, like, Hellenization that the, like... Yeah. Egyptian government was yeah, like there's, there's, well, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, the 70 elders, I don't know how much of a, supposedly Septuagint was written by these 70 elders, that's the tradition, that's why it's called the Septuagint. Um, so there's probably some of that. I do think there's a theological intention with everything the Septuagint is doing. Um, so uh, we, that would be a whole other class to go Are through that. some people that consider the parts of Jeremiah that were taken out and then put back into the English Bible, like extra biblical? Or do those people, like, are, does pretty much everyone accept no. all of the book of Jeremiah? Yeah, everybody says that. Yeah, I mean, all Christians. I don't know of any, I mean, who knows? I mean, there's so many of these groups out here. Maybe yeah. there is a Septuagint only, you know. <laughs> who knows? But um, yeah, uh, yeah, no. And, and typically, some of the Folks that get really, really focused on, um, you know, in, in fact, like, you know, like King James only, some of the really hyper King James only would even deny that a Septuagint ever existed because they don't like the idea that the New Testament writers actually quoted something that wasn't the Masoretic text. Um, but, you know, it's very obvious the Septuagint did exist and they were quoting. That doesn't mean they weren't quoting scripture just because they weren't quoting the Masoretic text, right? They're just... They're quoting something from the Septuagint because it was helpful. That's what everybody read at the time, and they're writing in the New Testament in Greek, so they're trying to make it helpful and easy for people to understand. So, of course, they're going to quote. Here's, here's the Old Testament in Greek. Let me just quote it and bring it. So, 
Um, yeah, so I don't know of anybody that would say, oh, no, the Septuagint is the better. Um, but I do know a lot of, and I would agree with this, there's a lot of Christians that would say studying the Septuagint is helpful. Um, it, it helps us understand, uh, because, again, it's, just, it's a translation, and sometimes a translation can help us, oh, oh this is at least what they thought he, the Masoretic text meant in Hebrew. Um, so I do think it's helpful. I do think it's Scripture. Um, but yeah, we got to be careful about some of those things, like taking out parts of Jeremiah. Yep. Good question. Uh, any other questions about this? Yeah. So, uh, so you've got this list of yeah. books of the Tanakh yeah. uh, there. Mm -hmm. Is it, and, and you said it came from three scrolls? Uh, well, a lot of scrolls. Uh, it came from this three, three divisions, right, or three um, groups of scrolls. Yeah, and so is it, is it possible to say which of those, are, is that the order that they're in? Yeah, what, in this, yeah, right here. So if you had the Tanakh, if you're looking at that uh, handout there, the Tanakh, the Pentateuch, the first section, or the Torah, that's the first five books. So Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then the prophets, or um, Hebrew Bible says the Nevelim. Um, that's what it is in Hebrew. That's Joshua through Malachi. And then uh, the writings, or the uh, Ketavim, that is Psalms through Chronicles. So those are your three sections. Okay. And, and then Tanakh comes from that, right? So you got Torah, uh, Nevelim, which means prophets, and Ketavim, which means writings. So T-N-K, Tanakh. Yeah. Yep. So that's why we're studying the writings which you may have not heard of, right? It's not like you can open your English Bible and see, oh, here's the section that says the writings, right? It's in a different order. So, uh, but that's why we're studying the writings. And I think that what you'll find as we get into it is there is a real um, intentionality and um, uh, the, by the ordination and authority of the Holy Spirit, um, really a lot of truth that points you towards the Messiah which is really exciting to study if you're a New Covenant believer. Um, anything that we can get our hands on from God or our minds around that's straight from God that's about the Messiah is helpful for us. So, um, so what we're going to do here, if you can see on that list here, uh, Psalms through Chronicles, uh, and that's another difference you'll see as you're looking at this, these lists, right? Uh, the Septuagint in the English Bible often divided these things into two books, right? Like Kings, um, you can see there, uh, uh, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. Your English Bible will divide them into two books. Well, in the Hebrew Bible, they're just one, okay? So, but as we're studying this, Psalms is enormous, right? Job. Proverbs, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah was one, one book, one scroll in the Hebrew Bible. And then Chronicles. That's a lot of material, right? And we're going to do this in 11 or 12, well, 10, 10 weeks, something like that, right? Two sessions, 10 or 11 weeks. Um, so I just want to manage some expectations here, right? <laughs> we, we are, uh, this will be nothing like what we get in uh, Rich's sermons, right? Where we really dive into the text mm -hmm. and, you know, 
do ex expositional teach like that's really not what we're, we're going to be able to do here okay this is much uh, you, the better way to look at this is putting a fire hose right in your face and turning it on right so that's that's what we're going to do but we will at points every week stop down and read a passage and study it a little bit and then try to apply it to our lives as new covenant believers okay and all of this, my main purpose here in doing this is to help you uh, read it on your own as New Covenant believers and be able to, okay, let me, let me understand how this, uh, which seemingly is written to, uh, you know, uh, Israelites in the wilderness or in uh, the exile, which it is, how can this be, how can I read this as a New Covenant believer and apply it to my life? Okay, so that's my that's my purpose here. Um, any questions or comments about any of that? Why we're studying the writings? What we're going to try to accomplish here in this time? Okay, I want to uh, then spend the next uh, 35, 40 minutes on this first lesson, which is not getting into the text yet. It's a uh, lesson about um, interpretation and how we should interpret the text and how we should read the text uh, because we kind of need this foundation uh, before we can jump in. So um, if uh, there is a little bit of a wordiness and nerdiness that almost rhymes to this. So uh, if, you're, if you're dying to get into the text, that will, that will mainly come next week. So just be patient. Um, and but I will try to really help you uh, kind of find this interesting and engage. It is important for us uh, to think through uh, how we interpret these things, um, and uh, and so that's why we're doing this. Um, and if you've there's chances are if you've been with me in a class before, you've heard a lot of this already. So uh, my apologies if this is a broken record for you, but. Uh, for a lot of the new folks, you, some of this will be new for you, okay? So let's talk about this, inter introduction and interpretation, which is your other handout. Uh, first of all, let's talk about Scripture. Why Scripture? Why do we study it? Um, okay. Okay, so why scripture? Why do we study scripture? Uh, number one there is general revelation. Uh, general revelation is God's communication of himself at all times and all places. It is found in nature, human nature, and history. Uh, we see this in Romans 1, this concept of general revelation. Uh, God is revealing himself. Uh, in this way. Number two, special revelation. This is God's communication of himself to particular people at particular times and places in order that there would be a redemptive relationship between God and these people. Scripture is our primary example of this. So what do I mean by that? Scripture is our primary example. We were there at Calvary 2,000 years ago. Let's see if I can get this on board. If we were there, then we would say, <coughs> and, and, you know, we, we, you know, we're sitting there, we see the three crosses 
we see um, uh, that when Christ dies, the, the sky is open, the veil is torn, all of these things happen. Um, if we were there, that we would clearly say, this is special revelation for me, right? God has done this so that I can see this. Uh, he is specifically revealing himself to me right now and communicating to me directly. Okay, but we were not there 2,000 years ago. We're here now. So our primary example of special revelation is the word, right? It's scripture. It's the words of God written in his text. So that's why we study scripture, because it's his special revelation written directly to us. Okay, so what are the implications of this? Number one, inspiration. If this is really God's word, God's special revelation, then the number one implication of this is inspiration. Inspiration is that God directed the thoughts of the writers in such a way that what they wrote was exactly what God intended them to write. Uh, 2 Peter uh, 1 talks about this, Matthew 19. 2 Timothy 3.16, of course, a very famous passage. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, uh, rebuke, and correction. Uh, and then, of course, 2 Peter 3.16 as well. So this is the idea that um, uh, scholars often refer to this as verbal plenary, which is just the idea that, okay, uh, these are real men, these are actual men writing these texts using their own kind of thoughts and backgrounds and everything else to write the text. But at the same time, because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, every word that they choose is also the word that God chooses. And so every word that is communicated to you on the page is the exact word that God wants to communicate. Right? So that's what we mean by inspiration. Uh, another implication, number two, is inerrancy, I-N-E-R-R-A-N-C-Y. This is a clear implication of the idea of special revelation through the Bible because the Bible, when taking into account the culture and the means of communication at the time of the scriptures were written and in view of purposes for which they were written, is truthful in everything it affirms. If it's from God, then it's truthful, right? It's without error. Uh, this is something that is a necessary implication of the idea of special revelation through scripture. Uh, now you see there's, I got a couple caveats in there. You see those when taking into account the culture and the means of communication at the time the scriptures were written. What do I mean by that? So um, often critics of the scriptures will come up with these different things, right? Like, um, you know, they'll go back to the genealogies for instance. Uh, we have genealogy, a major genealogy in Matthew uh, chapter 1, we have another one early in Luke. Um, then we have all of these genealogies in Genesis, right? So um, they'll go back to these things and they'll note that, well, actually, you know, it says he's the father of him, but he wasn't. He was the grandfather or the great-grandfather of him, right? Um, but that's how they used to write genealogies, especially in Hebrew. Well, actually in both, right? They would just... That's the way they would do it in the cultures, right? They would say, he's the father of him, and they would skip generations intentionally, okay? So that's, in that culture, that's how they would do genealogies. It doesn't mean that the genealogy has an error in it. Um, it just means that that's how they did it, right? That's, so that's why I say it's truthful in everything it affirms. It's not trying to be deceptive there. It's just that's how they were communicating. This is how the line went, okay? Okay. Um, 
And then another instance is this whole, uh, this is a big, big thing for critics, is this whole uh, second day, third day thing, right? Like, um, what is a lot of our faith based on? It's based on the fi fact that Jesus died, and on the third day he rose again, right? Now, in our culture, in our Western culture, would we say it that way? No, probably not. We'd probably say on the second day, right? Because it's two days later. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday is two days later. So, but in their culture, that's the way they would phrase it, right? On the third day, he rose again. The first day is the day it happened. The second day is Saturday. And the third day, on the third day, he rose again. So that's just the way they would speak. Um, and it doesn't mean there's an error there. Um, it, it's uh, Obviously, it's a ridiculous criticism. But um, I, I just put those caveats in there because I want people to understand what I mean by inerrancy, right? It's, it's without error in everything uh, that it affirms, okay? Uh, the number three, another implication is the authority. The authority of the scriptures. The scriptures have the supreme right to tell us what to do and what to, what to believe and what to obey. So you see some passages there. Um, uh, I don't have the quote with me, but there's this um, literary scholar who a number of years ago did an analysis where he, he compared the Bible to the writings of Homer, right? The writings of Homer are the only other ancient writing that are even comparable in, in the fact of the, the amount of manuscripts, uh, but even Homer's not comparable, the amount of manuscripts that we have to compare to the New Testament. Um, and he's comparing these two things, and, and he's, his observation is that Homer is much more, the way it's written is much more of a, an invitation to the reader to, hey, come, come entertain these ideas with me, right? But the Bible is not like that. The Bible is, this is God's revelation, uh, and it's, it's very propositional, right? This is, this is it. The, uh, me or the highway kind of thing, right? Like, this is, this is the way you should think about life. This is what sin is. This is what uh, glorifying God means this is this, this is that. This is it's propositional, right? It doesn't invite you into a debate. It it's um, uh, it's almost di dictatorial, right? In it in the way that it uh, I don't know if that's a word, but in the way that it speaks to us, right? It is it speaks with authority. That's the easiest way to say it, right? And that's an implication of um, the scripture as special revelation. Okay, so that's number one, the introduction, uh, why we're studying scripture and the implications. Do we have any questions or comments about any of that before we jump into interpretation? I missed it, Mark. Who were you saying was making that comparison? Uh, I'll have to, I, I normally bring the book on this, for, but I forgot. Oh, okay. Yeah, so um, uh, it's quoted in a, one of my favorite books is just because it's analyzing the, um, but yeah, I, I've got it at home. So yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that you're pointing out that it speaks authoritatively, and that was one of the problems that the religious leaders of Jesus' day yeah. had with him is he yeah. spoke with authority. Yes, yes, yes. It's um, and the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds are amazed that he spoke with such authority. Yep. What crossed my mind is just you were trying to describe it, and I said, "It's thus saith the Lord." Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's a great way to think. And thus saith the Lord. Yep, exactly. That's a lot of the way we should think about the revelation from God. It's good. Okay, anybody else? 
Questions, comments before we jump into interpretation? Yeah. What is Homer? Homer is an author, sorry. He wrote, um, he wrote the Iliad. He wrote uh, the Odyssey. Okay. So uh, he's an ancient, like, um, uh, is he a Greek writer? He's an ancient, ancient Greek writer. So. Greek what, do you know yeah, what Greek historian. Yeah, he made he made up a lot of stuff. But yeah. he's a fun fun writer. What range of years did he write? Uh, when did Homer write? Um, yeah. yeah, but he's he's just an interesting person to follow because you're that's the only thing that we have a lot of manuscripts of. His writings are the only thing we have a lot of manuscripts of, other than the Bible. That are that old. Right. What's that? The only thing that old. That yeah. Have. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And um, numbers just don't even. Compare. They still don't compare. Yeah. They still don't compare. Yeah. Um, we have a lot. Of, of Bible. Yeah. Right. Right. You're right. Exactly. There's just many more. Many more. Of course, and it's not just New Testament. It's Old Testament because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. We found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. Now I'm off on a super tangent here, but um, anyway. Uh, any other questions, comments? Yeah. 8th century BC. Yeah, 800 to 710 or 701. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So really old. Google. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anybody else? Comments or questions before we get into interpretation? Okay. So let's jump in here. Uh, interpretation hermeneutics. Uh, hermeneutics is the art or science of interpreting texts. Studying the Bible requires a special <coughs> hermeneutic. Not only do you need to need the general knowledge of how to interpret a text, but you need to acknowledge that the Bible is inspired and authoritative revelation. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the differences between just a general and a special hermeneutic when we're studying scripture uh, as we go along here. But that's hermeneutics, okay? It's just a fancy word. It just means interpretation um, in its basic, basic sense, okay? Uh, so, B, meaning and significance, okay? Uh, number one, meaning is what is in the text itself. It is what the author intended by the words. Discovering the authorial intent of a passage will lead one to meaning. Part of this process is determining what literary genre, those are the two blanks there, literary genre, G-E-N-R-E, -E, literary genre the author chose to use. So this is like if he chose poetry, which a lot of, you know, that's, we're about to study the Psalms, right? Or if he uh, chose prose, uh, if he chose a narrative, or if he chose a letter, an epistle, like we see in the New Testament, uh, this affects the way we think about his intentions, right? Um, that's a choice he made, is to choose that particular literary genre. Uh, taking into account this choice will aid in determining authorial intent, and therefore, uh, meaning. So, uh, what do I mean by authorial intent? Let's keep talking about that a little bit. Um, and uh, I, I, first of all, I do not mean, I think a lot of people get uh, kind of wrapped up in this. Um, I do not mean when I talk about authorial intent, I'm not talking about the psyche of the author, okay? Um, 
art, art and a lot of scholars, uh, N.T. Wright gets mixed up in this a lot, but get kind of uh, mixed up in the background or the story that that author had. And so therefore that affects everything you do when you interpret the text, right? So um, if, if I have, if somehow we raise Paul back up from the grave and I've got an hour and my mission is to learn what he meant when he wrote Romans 7, I'm not going to spend a ton of time uh, understanding his background and how he grew up in Second Temple Judaism and all these things, right? We're going to talk about the text, right? So I'm, I don't need to be a Freudian psychologist <laughs> to um, you know, diagnose who Paul was in order to understand the basics of what he's writing in Romans 7, okay? Um, so that, that's, there's a danger here in getting too much into that, okay? So when I talk about authorial intent, I'm really talking about his textual intention, his communicative action, okay? But it's grounded in the author. It's grounded in him and what he's, the words he's choosing and the literary genre that he chooses, okay? Um, number two. Uh, actually, before we move on, I want to talk a little bit more about that. It's grounded in his... So, because it's grounded in the author and the author's intention, what that means is we cannot make it say whatever we want to as the reader, right? Um, the meaning is with the author's communicative action. It's not in our response to the, to the reading itself. It's not in our experience with the reading. That's not where we find the meaning, okay? Um, I will uh, show you something here for an illustration. Many of you know that um, I uh, went to Texas A&M, and that is a uh, major, uh, <laughs> uh, it's a major problem, <laughs> idol maybe. Uh, uh, but uh, I do, I do love a and I love A&M sports, etc. Uh, there's a, uh, so Texas A&M, their main rival, of course, is the Texas Longhorns. Um, and one of their main rivals, LSU as well, but one of their main rivals is the Texas Longhorns, and there's a very popular t-shirt uh, down in uh, down in A&M circles, uh, which uh, says this, uh, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, and it shows the Texas Longhorn with the cut off horns, and it quotes Psalm 7510 right now. As uh, a Texas A&M Aggie, I love this. I love this application. This is fantastic. Uh, is this a proper interpretation of Psalm 7510? Proper interpretation and application? No, it's not, right? We are not respecting what the author of that psalm was trying to say. Um, it's not proper, right? So this is a great example of trying to make something uh, say what you want it to mean rather than respecting um, the author's intentions, okay? When you're considering authorial intent, is it significant to separate the author from the Holy Spirit? Like saying, is it is it more important to consider what that specific author was intending versus what the Holy Spirit was intending, or is the implication that it would be the same? So there isn't necessarily... Yeah, so that, this is a... Um, how much do I get into this in this lesson? So I don't want to <laughs> jump, jump ahead here. Um... Um, I think that, um, 
we're going to talk about this on the next page in, in the center. Now, I would this is a big debate in biblical theology, which is this is what I'm doing a um, PhD in, right? So this is a big debate is this question, especially when we talk about um, Old Testament authors and New Testament fulfillment of prophecy. Um, so there are some that would say that the Holy Spirit intends more than the than the uh, human author does. I do not agree with that. I think that the Holy Spirit comprehends much more, but their intentions are always the same. So, um, so in other words, if we uh, talk about something like, um, uh, you know, a, a Psalm two, and uh, Psalm two, which we'll study next week, which is a messianic psalm, without a doubt, and it gives a kind of a Program, we'll study this next week, but it gives kind of a programmatic look at the rest of the Psalms so we can read the Psalms through this lens of this uh, Messiah that is to come. Now, New Testament writers pick up on that. So the question is, if David, I think, wrote Psalm 2, if he's, uh, you know, if we have him with us now and he sees the New Testament writer, he's going to say, my thought is he's going to say, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I intended. Now, I didn't know Jesus was going to be, uh, you know, the son of a carpenter and born in this year. And I didn't know these details of him, right? I didn't know his name would be Jesus. But, yeah, this is, this is absolutely a proper application because I did intend this to be about the Messiah. So my intention, Holy Spirit's intention is the same as the author, the human author himself. That's what I think. So, and we'll... Some of this I'm teaching you today, and then you, you, it kind of helps you understand why I believe that. And then um, as we go through the text, um, you'll see where, where I'm coming from on that as well. So good question. Okay, um, so where are we here? Uh, number two, although there is only one meaning of a text, the author may have intended multiple implications within that meaning. The implications are simply various points within the meaning. Any implication of a text is a slave to meaning. Well, what do I mean by this? So let's take a famous passage like the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One person can say, well, the meaning of that is that we should go into all nations. And another person could say, the meaning of that is that we should be baptizing and teaching uh, all people. Are those both true? Yes. Are they both consistent with each other? Yes. Uh, but they're just, they're kind of different implications of the same meaning, right? So they're not inconsistent. It's not two meanings. It's still one meaning, but they're just kind of minor implications of the same larger meaning of that particular passage, okay? That's all I mean by that. Um, not rocket science here. Implications that would negate, like that would, like if there's one meaning, can you give an example of one implication that goes against that meaning and one that well, well, I think it wouldn't be an implication anymore by the way I'm defining it, right? right. If it's an implication within the same meaning, um, then it wouldn't be an implication if it's no longer c consistent with that overall meaning. Right. Yeah, so if you, you would be saying something about that passage um, that doesn't actually fit into that larger kind of matrix of what that, what that verse means. Uh, okay, so number three. In God's sovereignty, he selected leaders, uh, apostles, 
prophets, etc., to write scripture. The writers knew that the writings could be read by many, not just the original audience. Therefore, the implied reader of scripture is anyone willing to submit themselves to God's authority. This is why we need a special hermeneutic, um, because these texts are different. The, the intention of these texts are theological. So should we uh, think about uh, what a passage from Psalms meant to those who heard it in the course of you know, um, the congregation of David's temple? Uh, I'm sorry, Solomon's temple. Uh, yes, yeah, we can think about that. At the same time, it has a theological intention, which is true for not only those folks, but for further generations, any faith generations to come, uh, including us as New Covenant believers. So um, the, the, the scriptures are primarily theological, not historical scriptures. They're, they are historical in that everything... They, uh, I already noted the implication of this being special revelation is that they're without error. So they are historically inaccurate in everything that they do, but their primary purpose is theology. Their primary purpose is to teach you, the reader, spiritual truth. Okay? So um, now did the writers know that they were writing scripture? Um Maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. But again, in his sovereignty, who are these writers? <clears throat> and we don't know, as he mentioned, many of them are anonymous. Uh, but the writers that we do know were either prophets or apostles. So, or they had a close affiliation with an apostle, right? In the case of Mark and Luke. So, do they know that they're writing scripture? Maybe not. Uh, at the same time, they know that their writings may be read by many people, not just their community that they're around, but by other communities. Um, this is actually going to be a, um, a section of my chapter three, my dissertation, is uh, this idea of uh, cooperation among the Gospels and a larger, broader audience, uh, which there's been a lot of writing in this um, realm here the last uh, 10, 15 years. Um, so, and, and just don't get too much of a diatribe here, but in this world of gospel writing, um, there's long been a thought that, well, these are, these are four different church communities and they're competing with each other. But um, a lot of the thought now, which I'm thankful for because I can use this a little bit and argue for it, a lot of the thought now is that actually they're more cooperating. There's a cooperation here and a, their intention is that they're going to be spread around passed around from church to church. So um, I think that's the nature of all of these texts. All of these writers are writing knowing that their writing might be read by other people, not just the people they're reading it to, right? Okay, so uh, that's number three. Number four, significance. Significance is how a text relates to something else like the reader's own situation. <laughs> Significance involves application of meaning to one's own life. Is the meaning's contemporary relevance? Okay, number five really gets to the, the crux of this and how we can understand this. Significance can change, meaning cannot. 
There is only one meaning for a text, but there can be multiple significances. However, a proper significance can only be understood when meaning is understood. So I've got, um, for the visual learners, I'm a visual learner myself. I've got a little thing here on the, if you flip the page uh, at the top, I've also got it up here. Um, this is a way to think about interpretation. This is just very basic evangelical hermeneutics. You're reading the text and you're trying to find the author's intention, his communicative action through the text. And when you do that, that's what leads you to meaning, the one meaning, right? So there's this one meaning and I could, you know, as we talked about implications, I could maybe write some, there's little implications within this one meaning, right? Implication, 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 but it's all one meaning. Right? There's one meaning um, that we get from any text, and it does not change. Doesn't matter uh, what church community it is, doesn't matter if it was first century, doesn't matter if it was now, um, in the case of the Old Testament, it doesn't matter if it was written in the exile, pre exile, uh, you know, that, that, I'm sorry, not written, but uh, read. The meaning stays the same. It's always the same, okay? So the meaning is, there's one meaning and it does not change. Now the significance is how you apply it. How you apply the one meaning. Uh, so this could change. So the, the example I gave of the um, uh, go therefore to all the nations and uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all I've uh, commanded. So um, the significance for us now, for instance, might be different than significance of Christians a thousand years ago who are reading that, right? Because, well, missions looks a lot different. <laughs> we have planes now, right? We can go do a short-term mission trip a lot easier than we could back then. You know, the applications of these things are different now. Um, application of that might be different for you than it is for me, right? I mean, you might read that passage and say, uh, boy, this means that I need to go do a mission trip. Or this means that I need to go uh, give money to this missionary. Um, you know, that, that, that's the application of it for you. Now, significance for me might look a little different, right? Like uh, Sarah and I have adopted a boy from India, right? That was a application of that text in our lives, right? So application or significance can change, meaning cannot. Okay, any questions about that? Yeah. The verse, you see it on all the graduation cards, Fuller. I know that I have a prize for you. <laughs> yeah, from now, Jeremiah 29.11, yeah. That um, is not spoken to somebody, but the principle of God knowing our plan, that God has yeah. a plan for you. Right. So I went from getting that card, not knowing it, to, oh, I better not use that, to, well, yeah, I'm going to use it because the principle of God knowing he has a plan for you is yeah. right. I think that's a good way to think okay. about it. Now, could, could we... Go through the journey, though. <laughs> yeah, go through the journey. When you get your that's graduation to... card from your yeah. PhD, I'll get that. <laughs> that. That's a good way to think of it. And I, I think that, um, you know, the problem, with the problem that people have when they use it is that they don't think about, okay, well, Jeremiah's, you know, God is speaking specifically to that people. Um, at the, at the time, but it is true that part of what he's saying is that a new covenant is coming. Mm -hmm. So now we live in the new covenant and we can say, well, we're also a part of that promise. Mm -hmm. um, but you're also right in that 
the, the one principle that's said there is that God knows, knows these things. He's mm -hmm. so, like that principle itself, that he's sovereign and he has foreknowledge, those are true, right? Mm -hmm. And so we can use that verse in that way. Now, um, do I think it's used a little too much? Yeah, I do. It's, you know, kind of indiscriminately. But I think the point is, did you say go through the journey? I think that's a, that's a good way to think about it. If you've really thought through it, you're like, well, yeah, it's still applicable because of these things, then I think that's a proper, proper way to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Yeah, that's a, definitely a <laughs> common one. Uh, any other questions? Meaning versus significance? So yeah. how can we, there's like, I guess a debate, right, in mm -hmm. a lot of like the full scripture. So how, yeah. if there's one meaning, how do, like, do we not all agree? I guess like we yeah, all have question. our own good implications question. of it. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think uh, the, there's two things going on there, right? One is, um, if you go back to the first page, <coughs> start with A, why scripture, special revelation, and then the implications. A lot of disagreements happen because not everybody agrees with those things, okay. right? Um, I would say that there are a lot of uh, different interpretations, especially by those who ultimately just want to attack the Bible because they've put themselves above the scriptures. So that's where we have these differences because we're submitting ourselves to the authority of the scriptures and they're not. Um, now there's the other type of differences which are among believers who are truly submitting themselves to the authority of the scriptures but have some disagreements on some things. I would say that, you know, and, and uh, Jeremiah just did a class, right, of the triage, theological triage, um, where there's like the really important things like the gospel and the trinity and these kind of mm -hmm. things. I think that those who submit themselves to the scriptures are going to agree on all these things, which is that's the majority of scripture. Right. It's really about the gospel, right? Um, then there's the secondary things, which are kind of, well, there are big enough differences that I probably can't, like, be at this church, or I probably can't plant a church with this person, you know, something, like, you know, so for me, that would be like baptism, right? Like, I, I think there are many very um, honest uh, believers who submit to the authority of the scriptures who believe in um, infant baptism. Well, I and this church, we here, we believe in believer's baptism. Um, I can still call that person my brother, and I have. I've had many um, friends who are like this, who think this way. Um, I can call that person my brother and uh, unite with them on 99% of the scriptures, but we can have this disagreement, and that means we can't plan a church together. It doesn't mean we can't be friends. It doesn't mean we can't pray together and all these things. So there's the first set, which I think is majority of what you see, certainly in the world, online, in the news. That's really just because people don't want to submit themselves to the scriptures, to the authority of the text. Uh, but then there's these other kind of disagreements that we have, and uh, at a certain level, we agree to disagree. Now, there's some of these things I can kind of, from my own perspective, on my own studies, I can kind of give you reasons why I think people differ on these different things. But um, at the same time, we all can agree on the gospel, uh, which that's really the main point of the scriptures, all the scriptures. And hopefully I'll prove that to you as we go through the Old Testament here. So, yeah.
have I've heard of this comment several times wherein like if there are two camps who have uh, you know uh, disputes in the authorial intent, uh, a comment would always say like either one of them is correct and the other is wrong, or either both of them have not yet arrived to the authorial uh, intent. Yeah. Right. That, uh, yeah, right. Debate, like, you cannot really change the yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. Uh, sure. Ask, so, would you say that's what like, there's so many different denominations? Yes. The yeah, and most of the denominations are because of that second reason, right? Um, mm -hmm. At least originally. Now, many of the denominations, including in Protestantism, have gone back to the former, where really the scripture is not their authority anymore. Um, at, at least, in large part. You can find a evangelical. Methodist Church, you can find an Evangelical Lutheran Church who agree on these things, but a lot of these denominations have moved um, away from the, the core um, principles that we talked about here. So, yeah. Would you say that one of the primary sources for the second set is the type of hermeneutics that they're approaching Scripture with? Sometimes. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. But, um, yeah, and I, I assume you mean like kind of literal versus spiritual, that yeah. kind of thing. But yeah, sometimes, yeah, yeah. All right, uh, okay, so let's finish up here with uh, steps in interpretation, okay? So uh, number one, what does it say? So when we're studying the text, we first want to read it, read it, and read it again. Read, read, read. What does it say? The more, uh, and the more of the languages you know, the better, honestly. Um, that's a challenge for me too, but I mean, if you can learn some Greek, um, does it, when you study the New Testament, you learn some Hebrew, that's, it's helpful um, to, to answer that first question, what does it say? And then two, then you're asking, what does it mean? Which again, is tied to the um, authorial intent. The number three, what does it mean in relation to Christ, or the new covenant? That's also a meaning question because that is in the theological intention of the author, okay? And then number four, what does it mean to me, the significance? Now, of course, we have a problem, especially in the Western church, you'll see, um, even today, you'll see there will be Bible studies or small groups that will open up the Bible, they'll read it, and then they'll do number one, what does it say, and then they'll move straight to four. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, well, what does this mean to you guys, right? instead of actually really submitting yourself to the authority of the text and asking, what does it mean? What is the meaning? Let's discover what the one meaning is. Then we can start applying it. Okay? Mark, yeah. with that, I, I go back and forth on, on commentaries because yeah. I read it, and then if I go to what does it mean to me, then I'm not doing the way we're supposed to do it in the authorial intent and all the things you've been talking about. Yeah. But then you'll be encouraged to go, what do the scriptures say, and not read commentaries. Do you have a thought on that? Yeah, commentaries are helpful, uh, especially if you get into trouble, right? Or you yeah, don't. Yeah. You don't. Um, I think the best commentaries are the ones that help you connect different parts of the scriptures, uh -huh. because mm -hmm. often the New Testament is referring either through echo or direct. Um, reference or direct quotation to the Old Testament, sometimes you don't know that. Mm -hmm. So you're right, reading through a comment, you, you, you read it, read, 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 and then you look at a commentary and they're like, oh, yeah, that's actually a reference to this. So they're helping you understand what the New Testament author thinks that you should know, right, mm -hmm. about the Old Testament or something I like that. I so. sometimes go to the commentaries maybe too quickly, yeah. but then I'm like, why waste all that time 
trying to figure it out when somebody else has already done that. Yeah. That. Yeah. Well, I think the the benefit for you discovering the meaning will be better better for you before you go to it'll make the significance that much better when you actually struggle through the meaning by yourself. But use the commentary when you get stuck. That's what I would say. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it's we have to be careful though too that we don't get so insular in our own minds. We're sorting this out. What's this mean? Yeah. Yeah. And we may just not have the peripheral knowledge that right. would help us understand right. that meaning. Yep. So we have to be humble enough to recognize Hey, I could use some help from yep. commentary. Yep. Here. The church, the larger Christendom, don't think can you help got us. nailed yep. because hey, that's what it means to me. That's right. That's I right. I think even seeing that in scripture is helpful. Like Philip with the eunuch, and we see like Peter and Paul doing that with people that they're teaching, like explaining yep. the scriptures to them. Yep. So it's helpful to understand like there's not this responsibility or burden on us to have to be able to explain it to ourselves. And in fact, there's less accountability in your own head of having to explain the scriptures to yourself than being able to. <clears throat> yep. Yep. That's good. All right, I got to fly through the rest of this because this is very helpful, very um, important for uh, studying the Old Testament. Okay, the center. Does the scripture have a central theme? I would say yes. It is possible for it to have a central theme because it's primarily a theological text. How can we determine what this theme is? Well, Jesus says in Luke 24, 44, which we read, that scripture, including the Old Testament, is about him. In order to uh, see what he's talking about, we have to take some interpretive tools into consideration. So this is where your earlier question, Virginia, about uh, um, uh, intention versus comprehension really comes into play. Um, there are many that would say the Old Testament, um, there is a different intention that the Holy Spirit has. So the most basic form of this is called census plenier which is just a Latin word, which means fuller meaning. I do not agree with census plenier. Uh, there are even more that would say that sometimes the New Testament authors are um, simply doing something called pesher or um, kind of thinking that everything is fulfilled in their own time, even if the Old Testament author doesn't really think that, doesn't really have that authorial intent. I disagree with this as well, okay? And the reason I disagree with this is because I'm using some additional tools when I'm reading the scriptures. Okay, so E, uh, text versus event. The scripture may be special revelation, but where exactly is this revelation located? If the location is in the event described in the text, then the text is only important in that it accurately portrays the historical event. However, although the Bible is inerrant and describes the real events as they happened, the location of revelation is in the text itself. That is the authoritative revelation for the reader. So what do I mean by this? Basically, I mean the scripture is not just a retelling of the revelation. It is the revelation, right? Was, again, we have Calvary here. Was that revelation 2,000 years ago? Yes. When we, when we read the end of the Gospels and see this story, we're not just getting a retelling of the special revelation. The text itself is special revelation to us. So if we focus so much on the historical event that's being described, then we may miss something that the author is trying to teach us in his narrative, in the way that he's presenting it, right? 
another way to think about it is we got the text in front of us. Let's study the text. What is the author trying to do rather than trying to go behind the text and try to find out all the stuff that happened in the actual event, right? Now that's interesting, this stuff, when you're back here and you're studying this stuff. A good example of this is, um, for those of you who are old enough, like me, to remember, uh, I think it was the late 80s, early 90s, Peter Jennings did this whole series called The Search for the Historical Jesus. And he went to Israel and he walked around and he, he talked to different experts and he said, well, this is where Jesus could have walked. This is where his grave could have been. All really interesting stuff, but it doesn't actually help us understand Matthew better, right? <clears throat> Studying Matthew helps us understand Matthew better, right? So that's the point of this, this particular thing. Study the text. What is the text trying to say? What is its intention? Let's not try to get behind it uh, and make that the primary focus. So that'll be helpful as we're going through things like the Psalms uh, because we're, our intention is not to try to recreate the moment to what's happening. Our intention is to try to understand what is David saying with this song? What is his intention when he writes this? What is his communicative action? That's what our focus needs to be on. Okay, so that'll make more sense as we go through uh, in the Psalms. Okay, and the rest of these writings. Okay, the three stages of scripture formulation. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but we see composition, canonization, consolidation. Composition is the writing of the individual psalms, right? So let's take psalms for example. Psalm 2, I mentioned earlier. Uh, the author writes this, or you know, any of these psalms. Say David is the author of many of them. He writes the individual psalm. That's him doing this. I may be gathering a source here or a source there, but he's writing this. Now, canonization means recognition by the developing community. Well, he's written it down. Now we've got it being read in the synagogue, right? There, someone is recognizing that this is authoritative. This is the scriptures. And then the third section is consolidation, setting the final form for generations to come. Somehow, these, all these 150 individual psalms got collected together and put in these scrolls and were included in the Hebrew Bible. Right? That's this process that we're talking about. They're recognizing it, they're collecting it together, and they're reading it together. So that's consolidation. They, I wouldn't say these two and three are the same thing as one in the instance of inspiration, right? We're not talking about the same thing as far as writing, but I would, I would say that these are under the authority of the Holy Spirit because we're now here, a textual community, reading and studying the same texts that they did back then. And that is awesome, and under the, under the authority of the Holy Spirit and the sovereignty of God. So, okay, so those are the three stages of scripture formulation. That's going to be helpful when we think about, like, the Psalms. Like, the Psalms were not collected together until the exile, right? I mean, this is much later than when David wrote a lot of these things, okay? So we got to think through this a little bit in this kind of this idea of, you almost think about it as a... Um, when a book comes out with a second edition, right? They have the first edition, and then they have the second edition where they maybe write an extra appendix or an extra forward or something. It doesn't change anything about the original writing, right? That message is still there. It doesn't swallow up that meaning, but it's bringing it forward for a new generation, right? And that's what these collections of the Psalms is doing, okay? Not swallowing up anything that any of these individual psalm writers were doing, 
but bringing it forward for us, including us being New Covenant believers. Okay, and the number, uh, the last thing here is important devices used. The first blank there is, I've got these on the board, intertextuality. This is a reference to a truth in, a pre, in the same book previously mentioned. Intertextuality is uh, in a previous book of Scripture. This is a reference to a previous book of Scripture. We see this primarily with the New Testament use of the Old, but we'll see this in the Psalms and the other writings. They're going to reference back to the Pentateuch. Okay, and then contextuality is the placement of a passage or a book in a particular order in the Bible. This will this will talk about a lot as well when we talk about the Hebrew Bible, and it's uh, pointing to the Messiah to come. So all of these tools, all of these tools, are going to help us when we're studying the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and you know many people think about. The Old Testament is all of these different books that have nothing to do with each other, right? You can kind of think of a mosaic. They're just going in all these different directions. Maybe they're loosely, you know, but they're basically kind of haphazardly thrown together, right? But if we use the right tools, then we actually see something more like this, right? Yeah, there's a lot of different authors with different stories and different meanings, but actually, they all kind of point towards the same theological truth, and that's the Messiah. So, All right, so, um, so we'll use these tools as we study through. We're going to start with Psalms next week. I'm going to start early, just like I did today, because we're going to do Psalms in two weeks. All right, so uh, I do want you to read this question for reflection and think about this this week. Number one, have you considered the extent to which Scripture, including the Old Testament, is about Jesus? Have you traditionally thought of him as simply a fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecies or as the central part, point of the whole Bible? I think you know what I think about that. So, um, so yeah, come on, come on back next week. We're going to start early uh, and jump into the Psalms. Thanks, guys.